0: Right. well today we are wrapping up chapter 26 of the Confession of Faith. In the past four months, uh, taking turns, Jason and I, we have covered the whole chapter and we finally get to wrap it up today. Uh, Jason and I spoke, <clears throat> we felt that we accomplished our initial goal and purpose uh, in the various sermon series, serieses, siri, that we had. Um, and in the Sunday school topics, in terms of uh, premarital counseling, as I said, relevant to the merge, and so we feel comfortable with moving on now. We kind of looked at each other, and we're like, could we say, I'm sure we could probably say something else, Um, but we figured we were good. So you guys have graduated premarital counseling. Congratulations. Um, Lord willing, next week, Jason is going to begin a series on creeds and confessions. Right, Jason? Their use in the church, all that part, the history of it, uh, the usefulness of them, the role they play in the church. I am excited to announce I'll be starting a sermon series on the book of Daniel. Uh, I have been going through the book of Daniel since like January, and uh, I plan at least to get uh, through the less crazy chapters of chapters one through six. Uh, I'll still have more time to study. Uh, I still need to do a little bit more study and come to a further conclusion on who that, who that fourth kingdom is, that tricky fourth kingdom. If you ha- if you know the biblical answer to that, please talk to me. Um, but Lord willing, we'll begin that next week as well. After that, I know Jason wants to start uh, in Matthew, and we would just, we figured, let's just start again at the top of the confession in chapter one. Okay. But before we do all that, we need to wrap up chapter 26 with a final look at the very end of paragraph 15, a very important section, by no means something to just breeze over. Last week, we looked at what's really the first two-thirds of paragraph 15, which show us, on the one hand, all the kinds of things that an association of churches may and probably ought to deal with. They may deal with difficulties, which we saw are really just kind of intricate, complex matters, perhaps problems that a church has where they don't know the right way to go forward. Um, They may deal with differences. Differences are really more a matter of conflict. They they often can be difference of of opinions. Furthermore, uh, these issues, these differences or difficulties, on the one hand, might be of a doctrinal nature. It could be anything ranging from a simple, innocent, doctrinal question. That, that happens sometimes uh, in our own associational meetings. Someone will ask kind of a, you might say, like a third-tier question. It's not like, was Christ God or anything like that? Um, something, what do you guys do in this case? What do you think we, you know, what are your, your thoughts on this? It may be from that, or it may address heterodoxy and even, uh, at worst, heresy at times. On the other hand, the difficulties in difference might be less of a doctrinal nature and more of a practical nature, having to do with what the confession calls administrations, the administrations of a church, all of these kinds of things an association of churches may and ought to deal with. Furthermore, we saw the potential scope on the one hand, as well as the effects of the problems that an association might deal with. The scope, it it may affect just one church. It may affect all of the churches. Either way, it's, it's fair game. As to its effects, it may be affecting the peace, union, and edification of the churches. As we saw, that's echoing the language uh, really for part of the benefits of an association to promote those kinds of things. So if anything is a hindrance uh, to the peace, union, and edification, it, it falls within the scope of the prerogatives of an association. Lastly, but very importantly, we saw that an association of churches can examine and evaluate accusations of church censures that are, as the confession says, not according to truth and order. On the one hand, an accusation might be not according to truth. It might not be true. It might not be that someone has done something. There's a a misunderstanding or a false accusation, or it may be that perhaps it was truthful Um, But it was not done in an orderly manner. Maybe someone was in sin, but they they skipped the first three steps and just jumped to church discipline. They didn't talk to them or something like that. Um, It might be both. In either of these matters, we saw an association may hear the parties involved, weigh the matters, and give their advice. In fact, we read one of my favorite quotes from an association related to this last week. From the South Wales Association, they tell a group of members of a church that has departed the church and charges the church with disorders, they say, we desire that they would at our said meeting give their reasons unto us why they charge the church with disorders and what those disorders are, where they shall be fully heard and the business discussed and judged in the fear of the Lord according to scripture and right reason, right? So there is a channel, there's a... There's an outlet, if you will, for grievances where they may be addressed. So any and all of those things, churches holding communion together may consider by sending their messengers who then give advice and report back to the churches. Okay. Were there any questions on that before we move on? All right. Well, today we're going to look at the last third of paragraph 15, which begins with the word, how be it, how be it. We don't use that word too much these days, how be it. This third section of paragraph 15 is meant to give some clarification to what before it, what went before it, as far as the kinds of things that an association may deal with and how they are to be dealt with. And it seeks to give a very important clarification, namely, that in all those things, How are we to not only understand what an association is doing in terms of church power, but especially what they are not doing? What that does not mean when all of that that thing of the, the messengers coming together, what do we not mean by that? Paragraph 15 really seeks to explain that. In other words, the Congregationalists agreed with the Presbyterians that churches may And indeed, when they have opportunity, ought to come together to determine matters either of doctrine, administration, or church censures, yet this is all to be understood in light of everything that has preceded this paragraph, namely that the local church is still, uh, to use the term, it was months ago, the term, the local church is still the protondecticon. It's still the first recipient of the keys of the kingdom and power from Christ. We saw that Henry Jacob, that father of Congregationalism, summarized this very succinctly. It's one of my favorite Henry Jacob quotes. He says, There is nothing without the church, meaning outside of it. There is nothing outside of the church above it. Okay? In terms of, of course, assuming Christ is above the church, there's no intermediary, there's no us, there's no other person or entity who delegates its authority to the local church, it's given directly by Christ. And Jacob continues, seeing that each church hath her power and government immediately from Christ. Well, when we come to paragraph 15 then and in interchurch church communion, we don't just forget all that. We don't say, well, that was kind of nice in its place, um, but really when push comes to shove, an association can overrule local churches. No, we do it in a way that is consistent, not only with the confession but I would say it goes no farther than Scripture itself. I would say in this sense, as Congregationalists, we can and do have the best of both worlds. We can have all the interchurch communion and accountability and peace and union and edification that Presbyterianism offers, while at the same time not giving more power to an association than it biblically deserves. And I would say this is a lot of, when you see some Baptists um, they just talk about the, the beauties of Presbyterianism. It may be because they come from a very defunct kind of congregationalism, which never actually practiced interchurch communion, never really had a place that you could make an appeal or to solve difficulties and differences, um, and they think that's really something that Presbyterianism offers. Well, you can have that with congregationalism as well without overstepping, we might say, the, the biblical grounds. Okay? Well, let's go ahead and dive into this last section. Let's read it, and then we will break it down, beginning with the word, howbeit, in paragraph 15 of chapter 26 of the Confession of Faith, howbeit. Howbeit these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly, so called, or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons, or to impose their determinations on the churches or officers. Well, The first part that I want us to understand, which is really the most important part of this section, everything else kind of hinges upon it, is where it says, these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so-called. That little phrase is actually saying a whole lot. There's a whole lot behind that uh, that kind of needs to be broken down. First and foremost, what we deduce from this is that in many ways, the main argument of the Congregationalists is that an association, or whether you call it a presbytery in the Presbyterian sense of a regional body, or whether you call it a classis in the Dutch Reform sense, whatever that regional group is, it is not a church. Properly, so-called, okay? For the Presbyterians, our our brothers and sisters, it is a church. With Presbyterianism, what you have is a hierarchy. There are levels of churches going from smaller to greater. On the very bottom, you have the local church, right? Moving upward, you have a higher assembly, which we just, we call the presbytery, um, and it's the elders of the churches of a given region, okay? That too, according to them, is a church properly so called. You can go up even more to the General Assembly. This too, according to them, is a church properly so called. You even hear it in their denominational names. It's not the Orthodox Presbyterian churches. It's the Orthodox Presbyterian Church as a whole. It's the Presbyterian Church of America... Or even the Kirk of Scotland. The Kirk refers to the whole thing. In fact, to demonstrate this, you may not know this. When I first heard this, I was, well, I am still a little scandalized by this. Um, For example, the OPC met, their General Assembly met a few weeks ago. Uh, They partake of the Lord's Supper when they come together. Because in their minds, this is a church. I see some eyebrows going up. Yeah, that's how I feel about that too. You would be stoned to death if you came to one of our association meetings with bread and wine like brothers. That is a church ordinance. We are not a church. But they say they are a church. Okay. Therefore, they argue they have church power, properly so called. Right? They can undo censures of lower courts, or they can uphold them. They can impose censures upon churches. They have church power, and therefore, the greater has rule over the lower, okay? Now, interestingly, this is different in a lot of ways from the continental Reformed tradition. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear of historians. They're probably Presbyterian historians. (laughs) They speak of John Calvin as the founder of Presbyterianism. Uh, Well, that's not really true. Um, There's definitely some connections there, but if you look at Dutch Reformed ecclesiology and how inter-church communion is practiced, it's quite different. For example, just consider again the name of their denominations. The URCNA is the United Churches, United Reformed Churches of North America. They call themselves on their website a federation of churches. I had a Dutch Reformed professor in seminary who explained the differences that for the Presbyterians, a presbytery is a higher assembly. He said for the Dutch Reformed, it's a broader assembly. That, that has a lot more in common with the Congregationalists. Um, indeed, in a lot of ways, uh, even early Presbyterianism is much similar to Congregationalism, and it was kind of born out of it. A lot of people don't know this. The early Congregationalists, called themselves Presbyterians. Everyone did at the time. It's kind of like when maybe, you know, everyone was a Lutheran, and then somebody's like, well, we don't totally do that. And they're like, okay, they're Reformed, right? There's Lutheran and Reformed. At one time, they were all just Presbyterians because they thought the highest church office was a presbyter, okay? But the Congregationalists saw themselves really as being in line with the early development of Presbyterianism, and they claimed it as their heritage. Perhaps one of the most well-known defenders of Presbyterianism in his day, very much a father of Puritanism and Presbyterianism, Thomas Cartwright, not very well known today. Who who here has heard of Thomas Cartwright? Yeah, not as many. Uh, He was big. He was a good rabble-rouser in his day in Elizabethan Puritanism. If you read Thomas Cartwright, you go, oh, man, this this is getting much closer to congregationalism than what we call Presbyterianism today. In fact, John Cotton, right, Mr. Church uh, Independence himself, he said, I conceive the form of church government wherein we walk doth not differ in substance from that which Mr. Cartwright pleaded for. It's very interesting. Thomas Goodwin. When challenging the supposed power of a synod or presbytery to excommunicate another church, he says, Mr. Cartwright, speaking of this power, did in his day put an, if it may be, upon it. He's saying Cartwright back then never went this far as you Presbyterians are going today. So all that to say, um, there's some interesting connections there, even between the history of of what, what what we would consider Presbyterianism, and our own. Nevertheless, for our Presbyterian brothers today, there are higher assemblies and higher churches above the local church, and therefore they have church power properly so-called. Now, there are many ways to challenge this and interact with it. Uh, the simplest, not simplistic, but the simplest is to say, okay, where do you see this higher church exercising church power in Scripture. Where do you see that? According to congregationalism, there are only two kinds, really, of the definition of a church. There's the universal body of Christ, the church, then you have the local church. And the local church, you see, exercising the keys of the kingdom. You see them doing things like appointing church officers. You see them administering excommunication. Things that we associate with with the keys of the kingdom. Where is this higher assembly, this higher church you speak of that does this? Now, part of this debate, to be fair to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, I don't want to get too bogged down into this, is that all those passages, at least a lot of them, that you and I would point to as proof that it's the local church that has the keys, Presbyterianism reads those as though most of them are a regional body of presbyters, okay? So, for example, Matthew 18, 17. Of course, that's a local church, right? If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I agree with that. Not so Presbyterianism. Historically, they argue, well, that's a regional church. And in all these large Greek cities, uh, there were little churches. And so when it says, written to the church in Corinth, it's really the church in the sense of a presbytery, right? Because there would have been little churches all over the places, is what they argue. Contrary to this, the Congregationalists were not persuaded by this, and indeed I find, I find the argument to be more asserted than really argued or proved. Um, the arguments against that are too numerous to say. I would say just go read Henry Jacob. That was one of the great burdens of Henry Jacob, to show that it is only, there's only two churches, the universal in terms of kind, or the local particular assembly. In a nutshell, though, one of the main arguments for why uh, presbyteries, as they consider, aren't churches is that whenever we read of churches in the New Testament, they could all gather together together in one place, all the members, and not just their elders. Presbyteries don't do that today. General assemblies don't do that today but that's what we read of local congregations. Henry Jacob writes, "First, that flourishing and plentiful church of Corinth was but one particular congregation, whereof the apostle saith when the whole church is come together into one place." Makes sense? He continues, which also we may likewise affirm of the church of Antioch, and of Rome, and of Jerusalem, and of Ephesus in those days. He gives a few examples. 1 Corinthians 14, 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are out of your minds? That's a worship service going on. It's not a regional presbytery, right? Antioch. Acts fourteen twenty seven and when they arrived and gathered, to, gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Jerusalem in Acts 15, we'll look at in a bit. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church. Notice that's distinct from the elders, right? You can't say church there means a presbytery then. The presbytery is mentioned beforehand with the apostles, the elders, and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Now we do read, in a sense, of the church of a given region. We mentioned this a while back. For example, Acts 9.31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up. However... To take that and to turn it into an official church that is exercising the keys of the kingdom is a bit of a stretch. It is better to say that this is not speaking of the church of Judea, Galilee, or Galilee and Samaria, but throughout. That's the wording. And in fact, I find it interesting. There's an old gloss that reads, that reads churches. You almost get the impression that they're like, well, that's not a church. These would be the churches that do that, right? Thomas Goodwin explains, he says, We acknowledge that the visible saints in a kingdom or in a city may be called the church as bearing the respect or consideration or notion of the mystical universal church as every part of a body of water bears the name of the whole, right? So there is that part of the universal body of Christ that we may speak of uh, in China. We may say, Lord, bless your church in China, We don't uh, necessarily mean by that one whole denomination exercising the keys of the kingdom. We're referring to a portion of the universal body of Christ that resides in that area, or as Goodwin says, I really like it, every part of a body of water is called by its name. Uh, If you were to go to, you know, whatever these uh, crocodile, alligator-infested waters are around here, Uh, You would go here, and then you move over 15 feet. You've not gone to a new lake. It's still the same lake, right? It's a different section of it. It resides, the water resides in different parts, okay? So it is a sense, in a sense, a church, but not properly so-called. They're not holding worship services. They are not appointing church officers. They are not uh, using church censures, nor are they administering the sacraments. Therefore, the Baptists with the Congregationalists argue that since an association of churches is not itself properly a church, so called, it does not have church power properly, so called. Therefore, as the confession continues, it does not have any, quote, any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons or to impose their determinations on the churches. Or officers, The local church, since it has proper church power, it does have jurisdiction over its members. It may impose censures or lift them. An association is not a church, therefore does not have church power and cannot impose or remove church censures. Now that being said, and we will look at Acts 15 in a moment, (laughs) and my caveat to that, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm just being a relativist, if you're an Episcopalian, in, not in the sense that you're a liberal, but you believe there should be like bishops, like so Anglicans generally are, uh, they argue for episcopacy, okay? If you're a Presbyterian or a Congregationalist, Acts 15 is where you go to prove your point, okay? Um, however, hopefully we will demonstrate, I think ours uh, uh, comes out naturally from the text. Um, we'll look at that in a moment. But let's consider for a moment now, um, okay, what power, if any then, do associations have? They don't have church power, properly so-called, but do they have any power at all? And if they do, what does that even mean? Well, here, let me remind you, and this is important to remember, let me remind you of the nuanced understanding of power that the Congregationalists employ, which enables them to affirm diverse kinds of power— On the one hand, a power of ruling that is in the elders, right? They would say the church, the members don't have a power of rule. Otherwise, the ruled would be the rulers, and that's nonsensical, right? But not all power is a power to rule. There are powers of privilege and prerogative, which they might call. uh, Powers to vote and choose for officers or give the final vote for church censures. These are diverse powers, and they're not all a power to rule. Simply speaking, power is authority from Christ to carry out his commands. So if Christ has commanded elders to rule, they have power to do it. If Christ has commanded through example that church members choose their elders, they have power and authority to do so. But not all power is a ruling power because not all commands are to rule. With that understanding then, Many, if not all of the Congregationalists I have read, not all use this language. Most argue in some sense, though, that an association of churches does have a kind of power. Or they might say at least it's a prerogative, all right? They might use different kinds of language like that, kind of amounts to it. They have authority to do something, namely to advise and give their judgment, but not an authority to rule and impose their judgment. Listen to John Cotton, Mr. Independence of the Local Church himself. He says, We acknowledge with our best divines a power in synods to direct and appoint what spiritual prudence from the word shall determine. But it is one thing to direct and charge churches from the word of the Lord what should be done by them, another thing to do their acts of power for them. The one guideth them in the use and exercise of their power. The other taketh their power, or at least, at least the exercise of it, out of their hand. Okay, So even though they're calling it a power, they don't mean by that a power of jurisdiction. You have to understand that. This is kind of one of the tricky things. Sometimes you read through cotton and you're like, okay, so the churches are independent, but synods have power. How does that work out? It's a, it's a nuanced argument. John Owen says the authority of a synod declaring the mind of god from the scripture in doctrine or giving counsel as unto practised synodically unto them whose proper representatives are present in it whose decrees and determinations are to be received and submitted to on the evidence of their truth and necessity as recommended by the authority of the synod from the promised presence of christ among them is suitable among, uh, suitable unto the mind of Christ. Okay? Now, they are not arguing that these synods have church power. It's kind of funny. If you read Cotton, he says they don't have church power. What kind of power do they have, John Cotton? Well, they have synod power. You're like, okay. Um, I don't know that that helps me any bit. What he means is they have authority to do what Scripture shows that these inter church communed churches do. Okay? Now, notice something that Owen said there. He said, this is suitable to the mind of Christ. That phrase is actually in paragraph 15, and it is an important phrase. If you notice, it says, it is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about the matter in difference to be reported to all the churches concerned. That phrase is usually employed, I would say, to speak of um, passages in Scripture where a direct command is not given, but an example is given, and the idea as, is that this is from the mind of Christ as well. Um, it is according to his mind that we do this. We may not have a direct command, but it is scriptural and therefore binding as well. Well, it says that sending messengers to gather together and give their advice about matters and difference is according to the mind of Christ. And I would argue that if it is according to the mind of Christ, Christ has given them authority to do so, okay? However, this is simply a power to advise. The messengers may determine a matter from the word of God and then give their counsel, but they do not have power to enforce their counsel. Henry Jacob says, Here we do humbly entreat that we may not be so interpreted as if we disclaimed all sorts of synods. It is the ruling and not the deliberative and persuasive synod which we accept against. That a synod should enjoin us to receive and entertain a constitution enacted by themselves, we hold it unlawful to be moved thereto by way of persuasion grounded upon a clear demonstration of utility and advantage, growing thereby to the churches, we do in no sort dislike. Okay? Now, here, then, we must explain that while an association has no power to enforce their judgment, yet, as we read from the records of associations, it may, as it gives its advice, do very similar things That a church does when a church exercises her keys, right? For example, a church can give a church censure of admonition. They can do that, and that's a church censure. A church can cast out and excommunicate. Well, since church power is required to do those acts, an association does not have church power, they cannot do them exactly in the same way, and yet, because there is an analogy between the members of a church together and churches within an association, an association may do similar acts, though not with church power to impose. You might be going, okay, I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. All right, listen. A church, or many churches may, admonish another church. They may do so. The Cambridge platform says, A third way, then, of communion of churches is by way of admonition. In case any public offense be found in a church which they either discern not or are slow in proceeding to use the means for the removing and healing of. Paul had no authority over Peter. Yet when he saw Peter not walking with a right foot, he publicly rebuked him before the church. Though churches have no more authority one over another, than an apostle had over another, yet as one pos- apostle might admonish another, so may one church admonish another, and yet without usurpation. Okay. So there are a similarity of acts. Furthermore, an association might break off fellowship from a church if they continue in heresy or sin, and yet that's not the same thing as having the keys of the kingdom to excommunicate them. We cannot unchurch them, but we may recognize they are no longer a true church and therefore not have fellowship with them, right? Thomas Goodwin writes, there is a maxim of the Reformed churches that churches are equal and one equal hath not power over another. Admonish they may, withdraw communion they may, for as one brother may do so from another, so these churches may from an erring church Yea, and a synod being an ordinance to them to heal them, and consisting of more elders than are in that church, they may declare Christ's command and will to them, but yet they have not power to deliver them to Satan or to unchurch them. Okay? So I may admonish a brother. Let me give you an example of what this means, how these are kind of different. If a church admonishes one of its members, that is an act, uh, that's a church censure. Okay? Okay? You may have a friend who is a believer on the other side of the country. Maybe you only talk through text or something now. You see them go into sin. You might admonish them. Hey, what are you doing? (laughs) I see you doing this thing. I heard you're doing this thing with your life. Don't do that. That's sin. That's That's against Scripture. Have you exercised a church censure? No. No, not only are you not a church, they're not even in your church you can't admonish right you have no power to enforce that on them you can tell them what according to the word of god they ought or ought not do okay you might even i've had this happen before you might even have to say i love you i can't be friends with you anymore i no longer consider you to be a believer you have fallen into sin i I don't have the keys of the kingdom to hand you over to satan i can't give a church center because you're not in my church I can't have fellowship with you anymore. But that's not the same thing as exercising the keys of the kingdom and giving a church censure. It's very similar and analogous to how churches may deal with one another. Thomas Goodwin explains, and it, it, has to, it depends on, there is an analogy. It's not the same thing. There is an analogy, and we can agree with our Presbyterian brothers. There's an analogy between the members of a local church and all the local churches as they are in the universal body of Christ. Okay? He says, We do grant and acknowledge that many of the same duties and actions which performed in a particular church do rise up to jurisdiction are and may be performed by a greater number of churches to one another. right? But only modo mystico, in a way of mystical communion. Because the relation is such, and yet the duties may be the same and the actions the same. A greater number of churches may admonish another church. They may cast out another church from their communion and association, but all this will not arise to a juridical power of excommunication. They may declare them to be perverters of the faith, to be heretics, so as to fulfill the apostles' rule not to eat with them or bid them good speed, And yet, in all this, it doth not arise to assuming jurisdiction, okay? Now, with the time that we have left, we need to look at Acts Acts chapter 15, because it all comes down to Acts chapter 15, whether you're Presbyterian, Episcopalian, or Congregationalist, and we we want to examine it. So take your Bibles and open with me to Acts chapter 15. What we have here is really a pattern. Uh, And just so you know, I've been using the word synod. If you don't know what a synod is, um, the Savoy uh, platform of polity retains the word synod. Baptists don't, uh, although I don't think you should read a whole lot into that. Synods are basically the same thing that we do as associations in our general meetings. They tend to be more occasional, though. But they are kind of a summit. A synod uh, comes from two Greek words, uh, like together on the same path. So you're coming together to determine a matter. Think of the Synod of Dort. They're addressing Arminianism in the Netherlands. Okay, Um, So it's more of an occasional thing. But in terms of power, it's churches together, and we kind of deal with them in the same way. Here in Acts 15, we have the pattern of a synod or an association of churches coming together to determine a matter. I'm going to read, beginning in verse 22 through 29, and then we'll double back and comment on it. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Judas called Barsabas and Silas, leading men among the brethren. And they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words, unsettling your souls, it seemed good to us, having become of one mind, to select men to send to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we have sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these essentials, that you abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. If you keep yourselves free from such things, you will do well. Farewell. Several things to note here. This is the determination or the outcome of the Jerusalem council. Paul and Barnabas had gone up because certain uh, had come down from Jerusalem saying that Gentiles had to adhere to the Mosaic law or at least circumcision in order to be justified or saved. Paul and Barnabas was sent. They were appointed by the church in Antioch to go up and consider the matter with the apostles and the elders. This is the conclusion. On the one hand, they deal with it as a matter of doctrine. Namely, whether submission to the law of Moses be necessary for salvation. They conclude in the negative, right? And they kind of throw these, well, they don't throw them under the bus. These guys threw themselves under the bus. We gave them no instructions. Yeah, they came from us. Maybe they're in there like, oh, man, look at the, look at the mess we caused or something like that. But they affirm, they, they say in the negative, no, you don't have to do that. But then they enjoin something not just to be believed, but, be, but to be done. Namely, quote, that they abstain from things sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. Now, you might think with those first few things there, eating things sacrificed to idols, you might say, well, wouldn't, didn't we just determine that that was all a matter of conscience, right? And now they're kind of saying you can't do it at all. Um, I would say most exegetes would say that with these first three things, they are telling them to avoid them as a general rule to respect the consciences of their Jewish brethren. I would say that's the traditional interpretation of this, which makes sense. Um, Paul would not later on go against the Jerusalem council and say, like, I know they said don't do this, but what happens in Rome stays in Rome. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, he didn't say that. Um, That's probably the best way to understand it. Fornication, on the other hand, is not a matter of conscience. Jews knew that was a very common Gentile thing to do, and they just say, guys, don't don't do that. Okay, But that's how we make sense of that. Perhaps the most important thing about this section is what they do not do or what they do not say. We do not see them overturning church censures, nor do we see them threatening to impose church censures but rather giving their advice about what is to be believed and what is to be done. I like a lot what Henry Jacob says about this passage. He says, These apostles delivered abroad these their decrees only so and in such wise as informing and teaching all men thereby what they ought to do, that is, in a manner of doctrine, to the church of Antioch whom it most concerned, Only this they say, if ye observe these things, ye shall do well. They say not. The minister that embraces not these ordinances is deprived of his ministry. The person receiving them not is excommunicate ipso facto. They don't do that. They say, if you do these things, you will do well. He continues, I grant that synods may discuss and determine of errors, and may pronounce them wicked and accursed errors, but actually excommunicate men's persons, the apostles never did that without the concurrence and consent of that congregation where they were members. Wherefore, more than this, no synod at any time may do by the rule of the gospel. If any do impose any of their acts on a congregation upon pain of some spiritual censure, Certainly, it is more than the apostles ever did in the church government, and therefore we cannot but conclude that it is now unlawful for us so to do, okay? So again, that's fine, and if you were to ask, if you, I guarantee we can make a bet, if you were to go to Presbyterian and say, show me Presbyterianism in Scripture, they go, open your Bibles to Acts 15, okay? If you're going to argue that, that they have church power, you have to demonstrate that from Scripture, we don't see this synod here exercising church power or church censures, And therefore, we'd say, no, we can't go beyond that. John Cotton says, That synod in Acts 15 laid a burden indeed, or a weighty charge, not only of doctrine to be believed, but of a duty in matter of practice to be performed for avoiding of offense. And lay it they did with a greater power, According to the greater measure of grace and light received, both from texts of Scripture clearly opened and from direction of apostles personally present, but though we dare not alike, uh, though we dare not allow a like equal power to ordinary synods, unless they have the like equal presence and assistance of infallible guides such as the apostles were, he's acknowledging, and a lot of people acknowledge. There is a special sense that Acts 15 is... uh, It cannot be entirely replicated because there were apostles there, okay? He says, Yet our congregational way doth easily allow the like power to the like orderly synods so far forth that when they have cleared from the Scriptures any doubtful point of doctrine or practice to be of necessary observation, they will readily submit as to a counsel and command of God both from the word and the word dispensed in the way of an ordinance. But it is one thing to direct and charge churches from the word of the Lord. What should be done by them? Another thing to do their acts of power for them. The one guideth them in the use and exercise of their power, the other taketh their power, or at least the exercise, out of their hand, which is more than the pattern of synods in Acts 15, doth hold forth. Really, all that is what we as Baptists practiced. Uh, they had no problem admonishing people. They, they even admonished churches at times. They advised them, hey, we think you ought to put this person under discipline. We read in the case of the, the Midlands Association, writing to the Bromsgrove Church of a certain brother, they say, in our opinion, he ought to pass under the severest church censure. They don't have problems doing that because they're advising them. They do not say, we cast this brother out. At other times, if they don't repent, they have no problem breaking off fellowship from some. We read the South Wales Association, they said, of certain disorderly persons, and in case they will not hearken to this or advice, we will at our next meeting with one consent declare against and disown them. What they do not do is impose church censures. They don't have the power to do so. And even Thomas Goodwin says, and does God give power to do what can't even be done? No, you can't. They can give their advice, and that fits the apostolic pattern in Acts chapter 15. Uh, Let me just say this here again to encourage you. Um, We talked before of kind of these doom and gloom assessments of congregationalism on behalf of our Presbyterian brothers and sisters. And if you don't have the power to impose censures, Everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And you're like, you had to quote the book of Judges to describe congregationalism, didn't you, right? Um, There was no Presbyterianism in the land. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, That is not true historically, either in terms of congregationalism or Presbyterianism, okay? Um, As I said, be encouraged. It is very rare to read of an association giving their advice... They're not saying, and if you don't listen to us, we're going to excommunicate you, giving their advice. It's very rare for people to not listen to that. It is an adequate means given by Christ to remedy and heal divisions and to deal with difficulties and differences. And really, it should not surprise us that if we go no further than the word of Christ, it will bring about all these things that it is effective. Okay?